When I was a little girl, and I saw the movie of the fairy tale Snow White, I didn't want to be Snow White. I wanted to be the evil queen. I mean, I didn't want to dress like Snow White, all blue and red and flouncy with the ugly white collar. I wanted to dress like the evil queen. I loved her look, didn't you? I mean, Snow White was so bland. She was such a bore. Come on, she was a complete control freak. She was all over those dwarves. So what if they were sleepy? So what if they were dopey? So what if they were grumpy? What business of hers was it? And just when I thought I couldn't stand Snow White and her goody-goody Snow White shit another second, the evil queen knocked Snow White out with a poison apple. Yeah, a, a poison apple put Snow White in a coma. And there was Snow White, deep in a coma, deep in the forest, surrounded by dwarves in a glass coffin, just like Tilda Swinton at the Museum of Modern Art. From antiquity, the apple has represented the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve ate from the apple and sin was born. That's why New York City was called the Big Apple, i.e. Sin City. For hundreds of years, people left their villages and small country towns, seeking their freedom in the city, sanctuary from prying eyes and small-town morality. People fled to the city to bask in anonymity and to pursue their pleasure. Because in a puritanical society, pleasure is sin. Therefore, pleasure is a radical value. People used to come to New York from all over the world, and they all wanted to be part of it all. They were inspired and intoxicated by the palpable feeling of freedom in the streets. They wanted to reinvent themselves in the face of that amazing magnetic energy. They wanted to be another log on the pyre that made New York great. Now people come to New York just the way they come to Dublin, and they want to clean it up. They don't feel the need to reinvent themselves, no. They just think that they need to be successful and make a lot of money. And somewhere along the line, they have gotten the idea that they are fine, just the way they are. Well, they're not fine just the way they are. And everyone knows it. Even people who just moved to New York two weeks ago can't stand them. Even people visiting New York for the first time this weekend know something has changed in iconic New York. They know that New York has been suburbanized. There is a gentrification that happens to neighborhoods and cities. But there is also a gentrification that happens to ideas. In the past, even as we moved forward into our future, we brought our cultural history with us. The music hall, the Bohemian Cafe, the gay bar, the jazz and blues club, the used bookstore, the hippie head shop, 
the rock and roll bar, the strip joint. One authentic culture after another lived in harmony with what had come before and remained distinct, visible, and available to all newcomers. Yes, the world has always changed, but the change going on in the world right now is different. This is a change that destroys authenticity. This is a change that erases history. This is a change that creates cultural amnesia. And out there, the wounded spirit of our cities cry out and we are filled, no, not with nostalgia. Nostalgia is what they accuse us of when we try to point out what we're losing. No, we are not filled with nostalgia. We are filled with longing. I make friends with cities the way other people make friends with people. Maybe it's because my need for solitude and sanctuary has always been so great. As a child, in my immigrant Italian mother's house, even grown up, I was never allowed to close my bedroom door or be alone for any period of time. Instead, I found sanctuary where they could not follow me. The empty railroad tracks behind my house, the black acid plateau below the dump, the jagged granite outcrop on my way to school every day, my back against the rock, the sun in my face. We can find many things in other people, but solitude and sanctuary are not among them. No matter how kind, how non-judgmental, or even how silent, not even a lover can hold our solitude or offer a sanctuary. Solitude cannot be shared. It can only shelter one, and we must never make another person into a sanctuary. I know that many people cannot fathom New York City as a place of solitude and sanctuary, but for some of us, for many of us, that cacophonous, scurrying, chaotic place held a holy peace. The asphalt jungle, they called it in the 1960s, boundaried by danger and risk, physical, emotional, cultural, intellectual risk, and we, who needed that raw, unmapped landscape, craved it with a desperation as great as the bleakness that emanated from its haunted streets. You know you're only 22-story That bleakness flowed and met the desolation of our own hearts, the way the sea washes back into its tributaries. We, who fit nowhere else, we, who ground 
to the granite ignite below our feet. We who fled the myopic, claustrophobic puritanism of America's interior breathe free, though ragged, in its harsh embrace. Grab a ketchup. Grab a ketchup. Fly it, fly it, try it. Everyone talks about how the world is changing. Well, I may be wrong. But some of us know that the world has changed forever. But something deep in my heart tells me I'm right that I don't think so. There are no more empty places. No dark alleyways, no secret corners left anywhere. Look, New York City, it's only a tiny island. It was easy to conquer. Now, New York City is like every other city in the world. It too has been mapped, delineated, bought, sold, branded. Time out New York. Time out Dublin. Time out Berlin. Time out Marrakesh. Time out Istanbul. Time out Bangkok. Time out Aleppo. I know from experience that my point of view is incomprehensible to some people. Why? Well, because my point of view has been honed by a long exile at the edge of society. But if it gets to you, and sometimes it does, and you feel like you just can't go on. Yes, the world has changed. All you gotta do, and you, is ring a bell. You need look no further than the roses. Haven't you noticed that the roses in the shops have lost their scent? Haven't you noticed that roses no longer smell like roses? Does anyone out there in the radio audience know what I'm talking about? Can I get a witness out there? Doesn't that frighten you? William Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And what, pray tell, I ask you, is the name of the rose now? Incomprehensible. Human beings are herd animals. Human beings form groups. Some human beings form crowds while other human beings form packs. Crowds are formed by conformists, by people with a desperate need for everyone in their life to agree with every single thing they think and believe. Political correctness is a crowd activity. Some pop crawls are a crowd activity. Packs are formed by nonconformists, by loners who allow other people to have their own opinions. But today, more and more, we are ruled by crowd mentality, by consensus, by groupthink. 
Fewer and fewer people are willing to stand up and say what they think. Even on Facebook. Because you know what happens when you say what you think on Facebook. The witch hunt. You know the drill. You must fit in. You must agree. You must submit. Individuality has become an endangered trait. Mediocrity is the new black. But this did not happen by accident. In the 1920s, Edward Bernay, the father of public relations, combined his research on crowd psychology with the findings of his uncle, Sigmund Freud, on our desire nature. Freud discovered that in humans, our desire nature can never be permanently fulfilled. And Bernay used crowd psychology and our desire nature to create modern advertising with the express goal of turning us all into constant consumers. In 1930, Edward Bernays said, If we understand the motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control the masses according to our will? without their ever knowing. Look, I know this is boring. Dry, dull, sociology, psychology. What does that have to do with entertainment? But people hang in with me. I'll take you there. Look, thinking is hard work, people. That's why so few people do it. I know some of you are finding this really boring. I know some of you are out there suffering. You told me she did comedy. I didn't tune in to hear this shit. Look, we know from contemporary neuroscience that in order to actually think a new thought, to have a new idea, we have to create a new physical groove in our brain that is deeper than the physical groove of the last idea we had. That's why most people had their last original idea when they were 11 years old. Thinking is sexy, people, especially when we do it together. In 1968, Guy Debord, the Situationist, warned us that the government, the financial institutions, and technology had merged with advertising and media to create a powerful illusion of reality that was going to suck us all in. He called this mass hypnosis the integrated spectacle. What is the integrated spectacle? It is the mass media manipulation that is being broadcast directly into our brain pan 24-7. There are no facts. There is no reality. There is only distraction from reality. There is only circus sideshow, only car wreck. What is the integrated spectacle? 
the media is hijacking our attention and then renting it back to us. Let me see if I can break this down for you. In the 1920s, people were just dipping their toes in advertising. They did not want to be told anything. They did not want to be sold anything. But in the 1930s, thanks to Edward Bernay, we were up to our ankles in advertising. By the 40s, up to our knees. The 50s, up to our waist. In the 60s, up to our chest. In the 70s, we were up to our necks in advertising, but we knew it. We talked about it. We could see how we were being manipulated by the media. People fought against it. They said, smash the machine. But people born after 1980 have never known one moment when their consciousness wasn't saturated by marketing, overstimulation, fragmentation, and disinformation. And you know what? They're in charge now. I grew up outside the hypnotic swirl of media and market in the culture of resistance. I have never been to Disneyland. I have never owned a Barbie doll. I never saw Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., or Raiders of the Lost Ark. I never watched The Brady Bunch, Cheers, Friends, Seinfeld, or Sex in the City. I did not watch television for over 40 years. I was too busy fucking getting high and trying to evolve. I reside outside the illusion of the spectacle in the world of substance over appearance. In a scientific experiment, the group not acted on by outside influences called a control group. I am part of a control group, but I know I'm not the only one. The streets of our cities have been taken over by zombie tourists. Hordes of shoppers overwhelming our cities, eating everything in their path, trampling over the citizenry to shop in the same stores they could shop in at home. I went to see the Book of Kells. I couldn't see it. Why? Because there were tourists draped over the case. No, they weren't trying to look at it more closely. They were resting. These people take up the entire sidewalk. From watching Sex in the City, they think they're supposed to walk four abreast, even when there's 15 of them. And what about those baby carriages? No, I'm not talking about strollers. That was the 90s. These baby carriages are as big as tanks. They're as big as Hummers. And how old are the children in those baby carriages? 10, 11 years old? As soon as the baby is born, they strap them into the baby carriage. Because these people don't want to run after their children, no. These people only run at the gym. And then, when the kid is 14, they let them out of the baby carriage, and the kids are so frustrated, so pent up, that they go straight to school and shoot all their classmates. 
Look, this is not happening in the ghetto, people. This is happening in upper-middle-class enclaves. Then there's the princess plague. You've seen them. All those girls who can't walk in high heels, tottering through the streets of our cities, followed by the drunk boys who want them. Those girls want a cupcake. Those boys want a blowjob. Maybe if those boys put some frosting on their dick, they'll get one. And what about the dogs? Now everybody has a dog, and they parade that dog in public so that they too can prove that they have one non-judgmental friend. And between the princess plague, the zombie tourists, the dogs, the baby carriages, New York City is no longer urban. New York City has gone from being the city that never sleeps to the city that can't wake up. New York City is in a coma. It's in a sugar coma. If these people aren't eating a macaroon, it's an artisanal gelato. If it's not an artisanal gelato, it's a cotton candy mojito. And if it's not a cotton candy mojito, it's probably a cupcake. New York City has gone from being the big apple to being the big cupcake. There are a hundred cupcake shops in a 10 block radius of my apartment. People are staggering from one cupcake shop to another, a trail of cupcake crumbs across the city. The cupcake is the narcotic of these new infantilized masses. These people want a cupcake the way I'd like a cigarette. These people want a cupcake the way you'd like a drink. And while the cupcake may appear to many of you to be innocent, the cupcake is malevolent. The cupcake represents what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. The gentrification of a poor neighborhood always starts with a cafe and always ends with a cupcake. Therefore, the cupcake is a tool of oppression, just like that culture of wealth that has invaded all of our cities, that culture of wealth that has no taste, that has no style, that hates beauty and worships only money that culture of wealth, just like the cupcake, hides the brutality of its entitlement. Being a fascist collaborator has never tasted so sweet. Penny, does this mean that I can never eat another cupcake? No, stupid person, it's called a metaphor. But Penny, it's not fair because, you know, there are so many different kinds of cupcakes and people are finding enlightenment and self-realization through the many different varieties of cupcakes that are now finally available. But Penny, but Penny, but In Penny. the event of an identity crisis, go ahead. Consult the language of cupcakes. Are you romantic 
champagne oyster. Impulsive, ginger habanero. Creative, salted caramel macchiato. Cheerful, cheerful, cheerful. When you see people in rags, when you see the homeless through the streets, do you feel cheerful? Well then, you're lemon berry. Hey, what kind of cupcake are you? Do you wanna have fun? Hey, how's about a few laughs? I could show you a good time. Do you wanna have fun? Fun. fun. This is how's not stand-up comedy. This is not performance art. This is not radio drama. This is not theater, people. It's too late for theater. This is just me and you in the post-gentrified landscape. Gentrification is over. Hyper-gentrification is over. We have been colonized again. But this, this is the new colonization. It's not just out in the streets. It's inside our heads. For the past 30 years, we have been living in an increasingly monogenerational society. Monogenerational, Penny. Do you make those words up? Yes, I do. I'm trying to be specific. Monogenerational, what does that mean? It means that at no time in history has everyone participating in life been portrayed as being in their 20s and 30s. That's not reality. That's an advertising demographic. That's a market niche. When I ask young friends of mine who I've known since before they were in university, and I say, hey, how old are you now? They stammer and stumble. They look over their shoulder. They make sure nobody's listening. Then they walk over to me and they whisper in my ear. They say, I'm, I'm around 30. Around 30? How sad is that? They know it's bad to be older than 25. They have bought into the concept of perpetual youth, an idea that's both impossible and tacky. The high point of a lived life is now viewed as being somewhere between 12 and 26. Old has never been younger. Aging is seen as failing. Young people live lives unmoored from history in the perpetual present. They have been conditioned to dismiss the past, to discount the past, to ignore history, but to love vintage. And here's the really scary part. Young people are having their youth stolen from them and they don't even know it. 
people in their 20s start out being $100,000 in student debt for jobs that don't exist. They're being encouraged to get PhDs in performance art, in contemporary dance, in poetry, for jobs that will never exist. People in their 20s want careers. People in their 20s want mortgages. People in their 20s eat in fancy restaurants with tablecloths. People in their 20s drink 15 euro cocktails. People in their 20s know about wine. Do you remember when young people were poor? Do you remember when young people were broke? Young people used to eat fish and chips. Forget the fish, just chips. The pleasures of fine food, expensive wine, exotic cocktails. Those were supposed to be the compensation prize for getting old. That was supposed to be the compensation prize for not having sex constantly anymore. I have been young for a long time. I never let anybody talk me into growing up. I have squandered my youth for decades and I'm having a great time doing it. I am currently in the youth of my old age. Young people are being groomed to be weak and fragile. Did you ever try to pass a joint like a roach to somebody under 30? They're like, ow, ow, ouch, ow, that's too hot, ouch. She burned me. She did it on purpose. She's aggressive. Young people have been talked into viewing themselves as victims. The latest form of politically correct protection is called empathic correctness. The controlling of any emotional discomfort that any student might have by reading books with any kind of violence. University students used to fight to read books that were banned because of sex and violence. University students used to fight censorship. But today it's university students who are seeking to silence people whose ideas they don't agree with. Today it's university students who are calling for trigger warnings as to which portions of books might contain racism, rape, violence, colonization. Trigger warnings are a kind of politically correct spoiler alert so that the students only have to read the portions of the books with which they feel fully comfortable and safe. Now students can be protected and uneducated. It was actually recommended to me that I add a trigger warning to this show so that I didn't traumatize anybody under 47. You know, people who are not familiar with satire, irony, sarcasm. People who've gone to university over the past 25 years and have had their sense of humor systematically removed. People who think, Penny Arcade is mean. Penny Arcade hates young people. I am not ageist. I don't hate people because of their age. I hate people because of their values. 
But nobody listening to this show has to worry about me hating them because you see, I hate so many people already that I can't hate anybody new until 2022. The Huffington Post asked me to comment on nightlife, where young queer and marginalized people can be creative and safe and supportive environments. Safe and supportive? Nightlife? You see, uh, that doesn't really sound like a nightclub to me. That sounds more like a mental hospital. I was queer before queer theory. I'm so queer, I'm not even gay. If the gay world that I came of age in was as obsessed with safe space as the gay world is today, gay liberation would have never happened. The gay world that I came of age in understood the human condition as only outsiders can. Today, the gay world is filled with the language police. But in the real world, language does not change violence because it doesn't address the underlying issues. Hate language is only hate language when it's said in hate. The monsters who roam the streets looking to hurt people do not know that there's a debate going on about what word they can use before they hit you. It is time. More and more generations of people are being born into a completely child-centric universe. You can't disagree with them. You can't be direct with them. You'll hurt their feelings. They have been conditioned to expect everyone to agree with them. They take themselves so seriously. Every single one of them is an expert. When are they going to be young? Have you noticed? that a lot of them are dyeing their hair gray? What's that about? Even kids their own age have to walk around them on eggshells. And we are living with the tyranny of fragility. But is it their fault? I think the problem is their parents. There are now generations of people who have never been slapped. Look, we were slapped by everybody. Our parents slapped us, our teachers slapped us, our aunts slapped us, whoa, who just slapped me? Our grandparents slapped us. Now they'd never see their grandkids again. Nothing takes the zing out of feeling like a genius, like getting smacked. So here we are, stranded in the before and after. The old has passed away and the new has not yet come into being. But when I say that the world has changed, people act like I'm talking about some kind of generational thing. They say, come on, Penny, the world has always changed. Get over it. You're just bitter because you're old. Admit it, Penny. You're just being nostalgic. But there is a difference between nostalgia and longing. Nostalgia is a wistful, sentimental yearning, not only for the past, but for who you were in that past. 
Nostalgia is passive. It's done from a safe distance. One of the ways that nostalgia functions is that it protects you from the reality of who you actually grew up to be, the reality of what you settled for. Longing is a persistent sense of loss that attaches to ourselves, our values, our history, our desire, a desire that is not material. Nostalgia is connected to the past, but we, all of us, we long into the future. Longing lasts longer, longer than anything else. I am not nostalgic for the 60s. All those assassinations, all those demonstrations I went to where the police hit people in the head, Generations of people, I mean all ages, linked arms across the planet to stop the war in Vietnam, to fight for human rights for all people. But listen, the 60s were violent. I was raped five times in New York's East Village before I was 18 years old. During flower power! By 1969, New York City was a police state. By 1970, every country across the planet had swung to the right, just like now. Who wanted that back? I couldn't wait for the 60s to be over. I am not nostalgic for the 70s. The clothes were ugly and the music sucked. The backlash against the powers of evil dissipated, and the beautiful, peaceful, nonviolent anarchist revolution died in its tracks. We were demoralized. I couldn't wait till the 70s were over. I couldn't wait till my 20s were over. I am not nostalgic for the 80s. That's when the decades started repeating themselves. New York was full of yuppies and Eurotrash and trust funders then too, just like now, spending their parents' and grandparents' money. Oh, they would slum in our dive bars, our performance spaces, and our galleries. But at the end of the night, they would go home to the posh Upper East Side. I spent the entire 80s in hospital rooms taking care of my friends who were dying of AIDS, who were abandoned by their families. AIDS is not over. Do not believe the propaganda of the big pharmaceutical companies. The pharmaceutical companies are lying to young people, saying, go ahead, become HIV positive. We have drugs to sell you. You can just take this drug cocktail for the rest of your life and you'll be fine. But it is a lie. They don't tell the truth about the side effects. Protect yourself. Protect your young friends. I watched over 300 friends of mine die overnight. And no, I'm not nostalgic about it. I'm not nostalgic for the 90s, the advent of the hipster. That's when everybody became an artist, and being an artist became an identity, instead of something you could actually do. I'm an artist. Great, what do you do? Well, um, I do a lot of things. In the 1960s, I used to say, hey, if everybody just dressed like us, and listened to rock and roll like us, and did drugs like us, well, then the world would be a better place. 
Well, the hipsters proved that wrong. Downtown New York in the 90s was like Vietnam in the 70s. You couldn't tell who the enemy was. I'm not nostalgic for the aughts or the oddies, or whatever the heck it is you call the 2000s. That's when everybody became an activist. You know, hitting like on Facebook? That's not activism. Discussing the problems of the world over wine and tapas? That's not activism. Come on, calling yourself an activist? That's like calling yourself a saint. An activist is what your community calls you after decades of selfless, usually anonymous service. You can call yourself a Buddhist without meditating. And you can call yourself an anarchist without reading Bakunin. But you cannot call yourself an activist without acting. I have always lived in the present. I don't want to be who I was then. I want to be who I am now, on the road to who I'm becoming. I was never a brownie. I was never a Girl Scout. I never joined the drama club, the glee club. I quit school when I was 13. I got put away with the Sisters of the Good Shepherd. Yeah, they wanted me to be a Magdalene. I never went to high school, university, or art school. I never took a queer studies class, a black studies class, or a woman's studies class. I don't need theory. I live my politics on the street with my body. Not on a velour couch in a student union with eight other people who took the same class as me. No offense. God bless. I am sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is what it sounds like. You can only get this point of view from someone over 60. I'm sorry. We had the good drugs. We saw the good bands. We lived it, and some of us are still living it. I am part of the control group. But I know you don't have to be the same age as me or have the same experiences as me to think about the same things I think about, to be concerned about the same things I am concerned about. I know you're out there. I know I'm not the only one. It's 2016 and 1984 has really kicked in. But almost nobody notices. When I read George Orwell's 1984, in 1984, just in case, it scared the shit out of me. Big Brother watching you through a screen in your own living room. But now Big Brother is no longer just a faceless ogre, no. Now he's a fresh-faced lifestyle salesman with a Starbucks venti in one hand and an iPhone 10 in the other. Yeah, he's always three coffees and four phones ahead of you. Adventure, individuality, authenticity. A lot of people don't want those things. A lot of people don't want the instability of real life. They don't want the existential confusion. Plenty of people hide the fact that they're depressed. Plenty of people hide the fact that they're confused. Me? 
I don't trust people who aren't depressed and confused. If you're depressed and confused, you're on the right track. Hey, if you're depressed and confused, you're a scout. You're a pioneer. You're one of the few people facing the reality of what it feels like to be human in this world. More and more, we talk only about technology. There is less and less talk about our humanity. Hey, there are plans to merge our biology with technology. That's coming. Meanwhile, empathy is being bred out of our humanity. But for right now, we are still ruled by our biology. Look, I'm not talking about gender. I'm not talking about sex. I am talking about human chemistry. We are still ruled by the old part of the brain, the medulla oblongata, our animal brain. Now listen up. In a woman, beginning around the age of 12, 13, 14, depending on your culture, the medulla oblongata starts to whisper its message, and this message gets louder and louder until in your late 40s, it is absolutely screaming, Protect me, protect me, protect me. In a man, beginning around the same age, but staying completely flat until death, the message is... Fear, chips, pussy! Fear, chips, pussy! Fear, chips, pussy! Human beings only have one function, and that is to rot and procreate. Our lives are ruled by that biology, by the biological imperative. Okay, maybe you're a gay man. Maybe you think you are completely unaffected by biology. Well, you're wrong. Why? Because the biological imperative is blind. The biological imperative cannot tell the difference between a cunt and an asshole. Those are scientific terms for our purposes today. Eventually, you will no longer be at the top of the sexual batting order. Eventually, you will no longer be driven by your hormones. Eventually, your biology will drop you as it drops us all. But at that point, you will have the unprecedented opportunity to rule your own life instead of being run by your hormones, instead of being run by your biology. But at that point, you will have the unprecedented opportunity to rule your own life instead of being run by your biology. But sadly, by the time most people hit 50, they're so disappointed by what they thought life was supposed to be, by what was advertised to them as reality, that they just give up, missing all the fun. A few years ago, I was in Los Angeles at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, another cultural landmark closed down because of gentrification. And a book called me off the shelf, and I opened it just anywhere, as you would an oracle. 
and my eyes fell upon these words. As far as your spiritual evolution is concerned, your relationships with other people have almost nothing to do with it. And I had a complete meltdown. Yes, because my entire life I have believed that all I needed in order to develop, in order to evolve, was to be in the presence of exceptional people. So you can imagine my shock when I realized that all I had been doing for decades was avoiding my relationship with myself. And then I thought about all my romantic relationships. All that drama, all those misunderstandings, all that pain and suffering. And then I realized that for years, I had been torturing perfectly nice people. Yes, torturing and tormenting perfectly nice people who couldn't give me what I needed. I mean, I would focus on one person, and if that person couldn't give me what I needed, would I leave them? All I want is you. Never! I would torture them till they left me. I would say, if you don't love me, then no one else can. And if you give me this love that I so desperately need only from you, then I'll help you. Because, you know, you have a lot of potential, but face it, you're just wasting your life. Then I thought, who gives you the best birthday presents? You. Who knows what you really want for Christmas? You. Who knows exactly what you want in bed the second you want it? You. Who thinks every idea you have is great? You. Who never says, oh, really, Penny? Who always says, great idea, Penny, let's do it. Me. Why did I waste so much time trying to merge with other people? No, really. I could have learned to speak Chinese. I could have learned to cook Thai food. Now, all these years later, I realized that no matter how much love we may have in our lives, we are each of us on our own journey, each and every one of us alone. People, I am talking about Amora Fati, the love of your own destiny. Yes, your own destiny. Each of us has a destiny when you embrace your life exactly the way it is, exactly the way it has been, then there are no mistakes. You see, everything really happens for a reason. That's synchronicity. People, I am talking about Amora Fati. It is a question of your self-respect. The world will try to take your self-respect away from you on a daily basis in exchange for status, in exchange for fitting in, in exchange for getting along, in exchange for approval. The only approval we actually need is our own approval, but huh, it's so hard to get your own approval, isn't it? 
Happiness? Happiness is a decision that you make. Happiness is not magic, people. I'm even happy when I'm miserable. Yes, because it's my own misery, and I farm my misery till it becomes happiness. I don't need anyone to make me happy, and neither do you. We need people to share our happiness with. There's no place to hide from the innate sorrow of being human, from the longing that is intrinsic to our humanity, the longing that makes us different from our brothers and sisters, the animals. What's that, Penny? The knowledge that we will die, that those we love will die, that nothing ever remains the same, nothing bad and nothing good ever remains exactly the same. Longing lasts longer, longer than anything else. Joy, pleasure, gratitude, authenticity, individuality, those are our only weapons in the face of certain death and annihilation. In the face of gentrification, in the face of the erasure of history, many people give up. Many of us ask ourselves, can I do? Own your life. Carry the history. Protect your authenticity. Because that's where synchronicity springs from. And it is synchronicity that sheds a light on your unique path. And live in your gratitude. Why? Because that's where the magic is.